The reading is on page 1159 of the Church Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf, for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Father, we thank you for Dave. Thank you for the faith that he has and the gifts and the experience that you have given him in serving you. Thank you for his heart um, to use those for your glory, um, to bring comfort to those in distress. And we pray for him tonight as he speaks to us. We pray that you would fill him with the wisdom that comes from you. You'd fill him with your Holy Spirit and that you would give an openness to receive whatever it is from your word you want us to receive tonight, to take hold of it as the living word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks very much indeed, Graham. Well, Christ in the mind, and as you've already heard from Graham, we're thinking about mind in the sense of the health of your mind rather than how intellectually well glued together you are. If you've come for that, you're in the wrong place. If you've come for manual handling, safeguarding, or health and safety, you're in the wrong place, okay? Tonight we're going to think about this. And this is the direction of travel for this evening. We're going to think about Paul's anxieties. Although we're thinking about mental health, because there's so much... It's a vast subject. I had to try and focus it a bit. So we're just going to focus on what I think is probably... Um, a really important subject for most of us at one time or another is anxiety. And to do that, we're going to look at Paul's anxieties. And then we're going to think about what is anxiety, just exactly what's happening when we're feeling anxious. And then we're going to think about a slightly technical question. When does worry, or my occasional episodes of panic, when does that become an illness? When is it just a normal response to things? When is it an illness? Not everything is illness. That's an important theme for this evening. And finally, 
most of our time we're going to spend on how does a Christian manage anxiety. And to get our cue for that, to get our input from that, we're going to be looking at uh, that passage in 2 Corinthians that was led to us, read to us a little bit earlier on. So let's start with Paul's anxieties. And the, the great go-to verse in the New Testament, a verse that people will almost certainly quote to you in a church if you say, I'm feeling really anxious, is Philippians chapter 4. And... Uh, Well, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And for many Christians, that is the last word on anxiety. You're feeling anxious? Well, if you're feeling anxious, you pray. And prayer works like a switch. And the anxiety is switched off. It's replaced by joy. Bob's your uncle. What's your problem? Well, I still feel anxious. Ah, there's something wrong with you then. And so the, the Christian guilt machine gets into gear. And uh, Pentecostals, Charismatics, Reformed Evangelicals, Catholics, Greek Orthodox, we've all got our own versions of guilt, because very often religion is just guilt with different labels, and that makes things worse. But the great news is, the good news is, that's not the last word in the New Testament on anxiety. In fact, a really good principle, I think, to take from something like tonight is this. No one statement in the Bible is the whole truth about anything, because the Bible speaks as a whole. And the words and life experience of Paul speak as a whole to this issue of anxiety. That takes us to 2 Corinthians, which we'll focus on a lot tonight. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, it's one example of when Paul talks about his anxiety for the churches. We say, well, that's, that's, that's spiritual anxiety. That's okay. That's very spiritual. And if you're anxious for the churches, that's brilliant. You're being very spiritual. But hang on a second. It is anxiety. And I'd like us to look at one particular example of that, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, the backstory for this will come to shortly. But just for now... Uh, Well, Paul says this. He says, um, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel, that's a little town in Turkey, quite close to Greece, but uh, across the water from Greece. I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So he's an example of Paul when he, quote, could find no peace of mind. And I bet you know exactly what that feels like. You wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you can't get back to sleep because you have no peace of mind. Why? Maybe all kinds of reasons. But that behavior is how anxiety can affect you. But I need to give you the backstory of this because the backstory of this is quite fascinating. Before Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, two really significant things had happened. The first was that he'd written a previous letter to the church in Corinth, which is probably lost now. We don't have that letter. 
but it was what we today would call tough love. He really read the riot act to the church in Corinth about a whole bunch of different things, and uh, you can pick up some of what that might have involved as you read 2 Corinthians. He gave it to Titus, the letter carrier, and uh, Titus took it off to Corinth. As soon as Titus disappeared over the hill, Paul thought, what have I done? Why did I send that? Oh, no. This is going to be awful. The implications of this are dreadful. I have no idea how they're going to react to this, and it's bound to be badly. Do you know that feeling you get when you click send and immediately think, ah, what have I done? That feeling, it's not new. Paul had that feeling. The Corinthian church mattered to him. There were serious problems. Paul wanted to deal with it. And so he couldn't rest until Titus had been to Corinth, read the letter, explained the bits that they didn't understand, and then came back from Corinth with a response. So you get this picture of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul is um, unable to settle in Troas, despite the fact that the gospel is doing really well there. And he does something really uncharacteristic. He leaves. And he, he travels westwards across the north of Greece, expecting to intercept Titus, who's traveling east. That's what's happened. That's the first thing that's happened before Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. The second thing is, something happened to Paul and his team in what he calls the province of Asia. We call it Turkey today. And uh, that's the subject of the first 11 verses of chapter 1 of this. Something happened, and in verse 9 he says this. Um, Verse 8, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Just think about that for a little bit. There's something in us, particularly people in the evangelical end of the church, and the more kind of metaphysical end of the church, that likes to think of the Apostle Paul as kind of floating through life on a little sort of hover cloud two feet above reality, and everything he just kind of met with this invincible faith. Look at the words he uses in verse 9. We despaired. Now that, that verse is, that word is interesting because it's, a, it's one of those words that Greeks used, still do make actually by bolting together other Greek words. It's called a compound word and uh, there are three elements to it. The word is ex aporea. Um, porea is the, the key idea in the, in the word and it means I can get through it. And that's where we get the word porous from. Something I can get through. Aporea means I can't get through it. It's the negative form. And that basically means, well, that's puzzling. That's a bit perplexing, isn't it? It's the way I felt most days uh, in uh, biochemistry lectures when I was at university. Well, that's aporea. I didn't actually think that, but that's how I felt. And the, the X bit, ex aporea at the end, seems to be an extreme form of aporea. And usually in ancient literature, it's translated despair. 
So Paul has chosen a really, really extreme word to describe how he and his team felt. We were in despair. We knew we were in trouble. It felt like a sentence of death. He doesn't tell us what it was, but he just leaves it there. And that's quite valuable because it means if you've ever felt like that, you can identify with, with Paul. And this word's rare. It's only used twice in the New Testament. And the second time it's used is in 2 Corinthians. Let's have a little shifty at what it says. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is a really famous passage, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned. Now, if somebody had been awake when Titus was reading this letter out to the Corinthian church... At that point, somebody might have been forgiven for sticking a hand in the air and saying, uh, excuse me, Titus, but uh, two chapters ago, um, Paul said that he was in despair. And now he's saying, we're not in despair. What's going on? That doesn't kind of fit, does it? I don't know if it does to you, but it just doesn't seem to fit. And I think Titus would have said something like this. Yeah, that's right. Because, brothers and sisters, there are times in our Christian life when what we know is true doesn't feel true. And there are times when that sense that this is absolutely true flees. And, and, and we feel those things. And you might say, well, come on, Dave, that's a bit far-fetched, isn't it? No, it's not. You'll find it in the Bible a number of times. Here's another example for you to look at later You know Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. Valley of the shadow of death. Ah. Enemies? Who's afraid of enemies? It's a, a psalm of complete contentment, complete calm. The same person wrote Psalm 6. Let me give you a quick blast of Psalm 6. Um... My soul is in deep anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? This is King David, mine. Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from his grave? I'm worn out with my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. And in that little psalm, which incidentally, look at the superscript at the top, David expected to be sung during worship, right? Great song to start your worship with next Sunday morning, folks. He's got physical symptoms, he's not sleeping, he's bursting into tears. He looks depressed to me because there are times as we walk with God when the things we know are true don't feel true just at that particular point. And that's the thing that Paul is experiencing. So when we look at the whole picture of anxiety in the life of Paul, let's not get caught up with the strange idea that Paul was in somehow deified. He didn't feel this sort of thing. He did. Don't get more comfortable with the humanity of Jesus than you are with the humanity of Paul. Paul was a human being, just like you, just like me. So was King David too. So there's Paul's anxieties, the anxieties of two heroes 
of the Christian faith. David and Paul. So let's have a little bit of a think about what is anxiety. Just read that. This is really important. Your ancestors were quite anxious. That's why you're here. Anxiety isn't a disease. It's not a bug that you catch. It's not an alien presence. It's part of the design of your life so that you can survive and so that you can perform well. Increasingly, as people are more aware of mental health as an issue, and people talk about mental health as an issue far more, we've fallen into the trap of feeling that uh, if we are, our mood is very low, we're depressed, or if we're going through a period of worry or occasional panic, then we must be ill. And it's really important that we don't pathologize or medicalize anxiety and low mood straight away. We need good reasons to do that. We'll think about that shortly. But just for now, these experiences, worry, fear, um, panic, low mood, sadness, numbness. Most of the time we feel those things not because we're ill, but because we're human beings and we have feelings. And very often there are good reasons that we should feel those things, though sometimes there aren't. You can't put your finger on why you feel so low. You just are. And there's all kinds of things going on inside us biologically that, uh, that we need to pay attention to. Anxiety is normal, and often it's your friend. You need it. So what is it? And this is to do with biology. Biology is... Uh, the anxiety is the fight, flight freeze or submit survival mechanism. When you get into trouble or you need to perform, your brain tells your physiology to generate certain substances. Cortisol is one of them, adrenaline is another. There are others involved as well. And they enable you either to fight off a, a, a threat, run away from a threat, or sometimes to freeze so that that reduces your chance of being caught, like a rabbit freezing in the headlights, or submit. Just let it happen. Um, and your body does things which might enable you to survive better. Ask about that later if you want to find out a bit more about that and why it's important. It's a natural response to threat. And in our culture, it's essential for high performance. So there you are on the starting blocks of the Olympic 1500 meter final and you're looking around and, and the other folks who are lining up on the start are they're really tense, I mean they're really tense you can tell they are oozing anxiety you can almost smell the fear not you well, how many times do you get to run an Olympic final you're just enjoying yourself getting your picture took, take a selfie wave to the crowd you're going to lose because you're not anxious enough. And one of the things that sports psychologists are very interested in is how to use anxiety to improve performance. 
and we'll think about that shortly. So it's fight, flight, freeze, or submit, and it's essential for survival, and it's essential for our performance as well. And it's part of this, Psalm 139, verse 14, as uh, the psalm writer, the songwriter, looks at human life and says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's an astonishing mechanism. And uh, the more we discover about it, the more astonishing it is. But it does go wrong sometimes. It goes wrong sometimes. But when it's functioning normally, it does the right things. So here's a question for you. We're not in Eden Baptist Church in Cambridge. We're in the departure lounge at Heathrow Airport, okay? We're about to get into an aluminium tube and hurtle at 500 miles an hour across 3,000 miles of ocean at 30,000 feet. Here we are in the departure lounge. Now you're looking around. How many, how many indicators of anxiety might you spot? Not here. I mean, we're in a church, okay. But if you were in a departure lounge, how many would you spot? Have a 90-second conversation to the person sitting next to you. And I'd like to ask you about some of those signs of anxiety. Over to you. 90 seconds, starting now. seconds to go. 30 seconds. Thank you. Give me 10 signs of anxiety in that departure lounge. Yeah. Checking your passports. Checking. Passport. Boarding pass. Have I got my currency? Um, where's, where's my wallet? Yeah, checking. Yes, next. Going to the toilet repeatedly. Going to the toilet, yeah. <laughs> Micturation, as we say in zoological trade, is uh, a sure sign of anxiety if you're doing it a lot. Yeah, next. Drinking excess coffee, alcohol, whatever. What's the price of a pint of beer in your local airport? It's £8.50 in your castle. £8.50. Marketing people know about anxiety. That's why they charge that amount of money. That's expensive, but I've got to have it. Yeah, next. Thinking of ways things can go wrong. 
thinking of ways things could go wrong. Yeah, your thinking is starting to generate catastrophic possibilities. And uh, so it goes on. Yeah, next. Fidgeting, yeah. Number five, fidgeting is, is really important. A lot of guys, their legs will be wobbling, other people will be doing other things, but just fidgety type things, yeah. Number six? Turning up very early, yeah, leaving nothing to chance. Yeah, just being, maybe we could say, um, responding in an exaggerated way to the challenge of, of the situation. Yeah, next. Number seven? Pacing. Sorry? Pacing, yeah, pacing up and down. So we've got to get the energy out. We've got to do something with this. Uh, number eight? Irritability. Irritability, yeah. Quite often, people who are quite patient will become quite irritable when they're anxious. Almost always, anger in a child is to do with anxiety. Almost always, anger in men, actually, is to do with anxiety. Irritability. Or maybe bursting into tears, being more emotional than usual. Yeah. Um, number nine? Paying attention to the emergency instructions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Taking notes. <laughs> That's nine. And number ten. Anybody got a tenth? Medication. Sorry? Medication. Medication. Yeah, popping pills. Um, that might help you. Okay. That's 10. So anxiety has a number of effects. And here's just a little list of the sorts of things that you might notice. It has an emotional effect on us. Our feelings are affected. Fear is the obvious one. Fragility. Maybe tearfulness. Maybe irritability. Maybe hyper-awareness. Our um, radar is on full alert. And that might not happen in the aircraft if you're walking through a jungle and there are creatures around you you don't really understand and aren't quite sure how they work, hyper-awareness. Our thinking is affected. There's a tendency towards catastrophizing, thinking of all the dreadful things that could go wrong. We're not always rational when we are like that. And quite often our thinking is scrambled. We lose the ability to go from A to B to C and, and our thinking is all over the place. Our behaviour, what we do, is affected. A common response to anxiety is avoidance. So I have, a, I have an issue from being 17 and trapped in a cave underground in Swaledale for, for some time before the water level went down and we could get out. Uh, I have an issue with be, in being in enclosed spaces. And so for quite a long time, I avoided being in enclosed spaces. It's a natural response. Irritability, you mentioned tears. Sleeplessness, too. Uh, waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to get to sleep. And there are physical signs as well. Sweating is one. Um, great pub quiz question. You only sweat from the palms of your hands when you're anxious. And that's the basis of a lie detector test, which I think is voodoo, but apparently some people don't. Um, going to the toilet often because you need to pee or worse than that. So there are lots of physical symptoms. And that's, that's this fight-or-flight system affecting the way that your body is functioning. You're not panicking. You're in a state of worry or low anxiety even, but it can have those effects. And of course, as the anxiety increases, as the state of anxiety increases, then you may find that you get more of those symptoms or more intense experience of those symptoms. So here's the question. When does that become 
an illness. And a, a medic, a doctor, would use three or four tests for this. In fact, the, uh, the, the NICE guidelines, which guide uh, GPs and other doctors in, in Britain as to how to, how to uh, diagnose things, mention these four things around anxiety. One is that it's more severe than normal anxiety. It's really serious. And it's out of all proportion to the cause. And quite often that fear is a response to a trigger, which isn't actually that fearful for many people, but more severe than normal. It lasts longer. It goes on and on. And I think that the broad diagnostic is more often than not for a period of six months for a diagnosis of generalised anxiety disorder. It interferes with your work and your life. It stops you doing certain things. It changes your behaviour. So Paul is gung-ho to share the gospel in Troas. But he can't stay. He's got to go. He's got to sort something out. Now, I'm not saying he was diagnosable. I'm just saying it changed his behaviour. And you often notice with people who are anxious, something happens. They don't turn up. Um, perhaps there's social anxiety or perhaps other aspects of what they're doing uh, don't happen as normal because the anxiety is affecting them in particular ways. Incidentally, in churches, Christian organisations, quite often people who withdraw because they do feel social anxiety, um, they have a bit of a problem because they can, they can go to a football match or they can go to a gig, but they can't come to church. And so Christians say, oh, he's just having you on. It's a spiritual problem. The guy's not ill. He's, uh, you know, he's just running away from the Lord. But the problem with social anxiety is not... Well, it's a fear of making a fool of yourself in public. A fear of, uh, of letting yourself down in public. So you go to a football match and nobody bothers you. You walk into church and people say, how are you? No. How are you really? And it's, it's incredibly difficult if you're dealing with that kind of, of issue. And you can't control it. It just won't go away. And you can't just pull yourself together and you can't just stop the feelings that you've got or render them powerless. So this is an anxiety disorder, if the answer to those questions is yes. And that needs a medical diagnosis. How do we tell if somebody is ill with anxiety? Answer, we don't. That's a specialist job. It's a medical job, and it needs to be done by trained people, and preferably trained people who've got some experience as well, so that they can, they can trade off their experience of a wide range of conditions like this. And it's going to need some therapy. It may need medication. It may need some talking therapy. It may need lifestyle change. It's a proper illness. This is the main thing. If, if you're interested in this, one of the best people you can read is an old-time Baptist preacher from the 19th century called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, Spurgeon had two problems. When he, he was a, a prodigy at age 18, 19, 20, he was a brilliant preacher, and he grew very rapidly an enormous congregation. So they had to move out of their church and into a local music hall to hold their services. Right, this is Victorian England, right? Straight up and down, dead. What is this arrogant young upstart doing? Meeting to worship God in a music hall. 
So it was hugely controversial. The pressure was huge. And then one day, there was a bit of a stampede, and I think six people died in the rush to get out. Spurgeon's wife kept a journal, and she said in her journal, ever after that, the smallest thing would set Spurgeon on a downward spiral emotionally. And it looks, at this distance, like something like post-traumatic stress disorder. But Spurgeon lived with this. But the other thing that he lived with most of his life was a, uh, a recurring serious depressive illness. And he wrestled with this as not just a Christian, but as one of the foremost... Well, he's a bit of a spiritual giant, to be honest. One of my heroes, for certain. One of the great things, Spurgeon, he wasn't much of a writer, and he wrote a a commentary on the Psalms, all 150 of them, called The Treasury of David. Now, he wasn't much of a writer. You've got to wade through all kinds of stuff to get to the good bits. But it is worth doing. Take Psalm 6, the psalm I read earlier and read Spurgeon's comments on Psalm 6. Here's a guy talking about depression from the inside, writing about King David, who, whose mood was very low, and he was all over the place. His comments on Psalm 88 are worth looking at as well. And he said something about these that I think is really wonderful, and I really hope you remember this. He said, both of those Psalms, he said, brothers... Although the affliction is in the imagination, it is not imaginary. And for so many people who've never felt or sensed these things for themselves, these weaknesses for themselves, um, it looks as though people have got an imaginary problem. And Spurgeon is saying, it's in your imagination. A lot of anxiety is. But it's not imaginary, it's real. It's real. So, how does a Christian manage anxiety? Let's go back to Second uh, Corinthians chapter one and think about that. Um, and as you read Second Corinthians chapter one, verses one to eleven, the first thing that you you see is that Paul has basically got a handle on what's going on. He's got a handle on the big picture, and he's saying that there is there is a purpose in this. There is a reason for this. Terrible though it feels. And here are three things. One, God is giving you a superpower. And the superpower is empathy. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3. The God of all comfort, who comforts us so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. When we have a brush with mental ill health, or maybe... We're not diagnosably ill, but we've had a brush with low mood or huge anxiety because there's something that's going on in our lives. We are sensitized in a way that others aren't to the the feelings and the experiences of others. We can never say, I know exactly how you feel, because you don't. But you can say, something in me hurts when you describe that. Because maybe in different ways, I've felt something similar. And that's empathy. That's your deep listening to their deep. And that connection 
is probably, if you're supporting a friend, the most precious thing you can give. A listening ear that doesn't condemn, doesn't judge, doesn't spray your friend with Bible verses, but just listens, prays, and cares. Second thing, God is growing your faith. And faith grows like a muscle. This is verse 9 and verse 10. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us and he will deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he'll continue to deliver us. Remember Philippians 4? Pray, it'll all go away. Prayer isn't a switch. It doesn't work like that. Paul knew that. Precious and important, though Philippians 4 is, do pray, do trust, do seek joy. But here you get another aspect on that, and that is the faith that grows as you use it. Faith is like a muscle, not a switch. And like any muscle, it, it grows as you exercise it. It grows as you work it. And as you work it, it grows stronger and tougher. And the only way you can grow strong and tough in this respect is to suffer. It's to feel anxiety. It's to feel affliction. So whether your anxiety is a kind of normal response to what you go through, it's not an illness, but it's part of you, or whether your anxiety has reached levels where it is an illness and you need help, God's giving you a superpower something you can use to support your friends, family. God is growing your faith like a muscle. And the third thing is that God is creating a supportive community around you. That's verse 10 and 11. As Paul talks about how their prayers have helped him and people will give thanks for the favour that God has granted in answer to the prayers of many. You're not alone. There are people around you. You can pray for people. People can pray for you. And one of the hugely therapeutic things, again and again, research shows this, is connection. Connection with people. Connection with a community. You know, the research says that even a small dose of nominal religion uh, means that you have a higher chance of mental good health. Well, you don't have a small dose of nominal religion. You've got an enormous big syringe full of extremism. You're way ahead of all of that. (laughs) Connection is the key. Well, just continuing this theme, preach to yourself. One of the things that Puritan writers, these are spiritual leaders from the the 17th century, the 1600s and a bit earlier than that, often talk about is preaching to themselves when they're feeling low, when they feel they need a good talking to We'll come back to that in a moment. But here's some things to say to yourself when you're feeling anxious. Maybe you've got an exam. Maybe you've got a tutorial you're particularly dreading. Maybe something's going to happen that you're just frightened of. Accept the way I feel. I accept this. My heart's beating faster. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. This is my body and mind getting ready to perform. This is me. It's not an alien force. This isn't a threat to my existence or my success. It's a challenge. My life is bigger than this one event. But I'm getting ready to face that challenge. And that's why I feel that way. I'm not trying to be the best in the world. Or even the best in my year. 
I want to be the best I can be. And that's good enough. It's good enough for God. Therefore, it's good enough for your parents. It's good enough for whoever pushes you and maybe bullies you. The best you can do, that's good enough. Now, I've got this theory about 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote it to address issues in the church in Corinth, and they're front and center as you read through 2 Corinthians. It's a great read, actually, if you want to look for something to read through next. Try 2 Corinthians. But there's something else going on in 2 Corinthians, and that's why, for me, it's a terrific read. I think Paul is giving himself a good talking to after that incident that scared the pants off him and after that business with Titus when he just had to abandon his team and go trekking round northern Greece. By the way, by the way, here's just a little taste of how entertaining 2 Corinthians can be if you read it like this. Okay. Chapter 2, verse 13. I had no peace of mind, so I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia, northern Greece. So you've got this picture. Titus walking from Corinth across northern Greece. Paul, maybe with a friend or two, tramping across northern Greece in the hope of intercepting Titus. That's the context for the next verse. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphant procession. Oh, yeah? It's not much of a triumphant procession, is it? But, yeah, Paul's taken the mickey out of himself. Now, okay, the mood changes as he thinks about a triumphal procession in Rome, and it all becomes about victory and everything else. But it starts with this tramp across northern Greece, and I think Paul is taking the mickey out of himself because he does the same thing again later on in chapter 10, or it might be chapter 12, where he says, hey, I'll give you particularly juicy example of how courageous I am. They were looking for me in Damascus, right? And some of my friends put me in a wicker basket and lowered me down the wall on the end of a rope so I could get away. So where the great Roman general would quote a particularly juicy example of his bravery in combat, Paul gives you an example of running away. I think he's taking the mickey out of himself. I think he's given himself a good talking to. Why? The punchline, really, comes in chapter 12, verse 10. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We love to quote this verse as long as we're not weak. Because we all believe, when I am strong, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong, is what you say to weak people. Just to make them feel better. So, be weak. Embrace the weakness. Embrace the fear. Because when you are weak, you lean hard on the sovereign Lord who loves you. And who is all powerful, is totally in control. Lean hard. And I was at a a leadership seminar once with a, um, a vicar from down south. And he said something that stuck in my mind. He said, I've just noticed that people with a high view of the sovereignty of God do better when they're facing anxiety and depression. And I think he's right from my own observations. They do better 
when they're facing anxiety and depression. Preach to yourself. Talk to yourself. So let me give me a top ten practical stuff. Okay, this is particularly aimed at students. Um, but these are my top ten tips for managing anxiety. One, get organised. Tonight, plan next week. And outline plan the week after. Stick to the plans which you can during the week. It'll have to change a little bit, of course. Next Sunday night, pl- polish up your outline plan for the week after and make an outline plan for the week after that. Then stick to the plan. Make a plan for the week. Make a plan for the day. Get organised. Organisation is an incredible cure for some kinds of anxiety. Secondly, do the work. There's nothing quite like the feeling you get when you turn up at a tutorial and you've actually read the stuff. <laughs> it's amazing. Try it sometime. <clears throat> Third, take a Sabbath. Stop working for a big slab of time. This takes nerve. The Bible calls it faith. Take time. You are built with certain rhythms, and one of them is a need for a seventh day rest. So rest. My final year. Uh, everybody in my course was working their socks off seven days a week and I took one day off. I might have got a better degree if I'd not taken that day off. I don't know. I have no idea. But uh, I really enjoyed my finals. <laughs> went rock climbing the night before my first one. Amy, almost killed myself. <laughs> take a Sabbath. Take it seriously. Do something else. Rest. Here's another one. Take a happiness hour every day. Stop for an hour. Because actually, you do better if you give yourself something to look forward to. See, this is a really difficult day, this. You know, I'm doing a mental health first aid course with 16 uh, recycling workers from Sunderland who don't want to be there. And they're sitting there like this, because they've all decided they're not going to take part in the discussion. And I just want to be somewhere else. Um, But I know that when I get home... I'm going to take the dog for a walk and we're going to have a cup of coffee in the cafe and the park and something to look forward to. Take a happiness hour. Here's my fifth. Stay connected. You'll be tempted sometimes when you're feeling really grim to break off your connection with people and minimise them. Don't do that. Stay connected with people. Make sure that you do because connection is so health-giving. Eat properly. Less caffeine and alcohol. Caffeine, by the way, in large doses, gives you the symptoms of anxiety. Uh, So cutting down on caffeine is good. Alcohol, a pint or two, will make you feel less anxious until two o'clock in the morning when you wake up to go for a wee and uh, you start feeling anxious again. It's not a great strategy. Drink more water. Sleep hygiene. Sleep might be a problem in phases of your life. Read about it. Study it. Talk about it with friends. Do the things that help you to get the sleep you can get. And tell yourself not to worry about the sleep you're not getting at that point in your life. You're getting enough for that time. Befriend your fear. One of my little preach-to-myself things when I'm feeling really gripped up inside... And I'm struggling in the middle of the night, thinking, crumbs, you know, why did I start this? This is so worrying. I tell myself, Dave, have you any idea how much money 
people spend so they can feel like this now. It's called extreme sport. <laughs> Befriend it. Well, there's ten things. If you want one thing overall that kind of sums all that up, if it's good for your brain, it's good for your mental health. And that's everything from diet through to everything else that we've touched on. So, this is what we've done. Christ in the mind. We thought about Paul's anxieties. They were real. So were David's as well. We thought about what is anxiety. It's a normal part of our being fearfully and wonderfully made. But it does become an illness. And we thought about the signs of when it becomes an illness. And we thought about how a Christian can manage anxiety. Two things to close. One is part of my job is that I I talk quite a bit and and teach a bit of basic cognitive behavioural therapy to people. CBT is really useful for a lot of people, very, very helpful indeed. And when I do this, it's quite interesting how many people um, quote to me this prayer. People who've never been inside a church all their lives. And people who know this from somewhere. God give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed the courage to change the things that should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish one from the other. Sometimes called the serenity prayer. It's really helpful, actually, because acceptance does bring great peace. When, when I do stuff on CBT, we don't start with research that was done in the 1980s. We start with a Greek philosopher called Epictetus. Epictetus was a Stoic And Stoicism, in the first few centuries after Christ, was an incredibly powerful way of thinking in the Roman world. And famous Stoics like Marcus Aurelius, the emperor in Gladiator, you know, who dies, causes all the trouble, um, and uh, Epictetus and a number of others. You can get their writings today because Stoicism is growing in popularity in our culture. And that first couple of sentences is pretty much stoicism. Accepting things that, um, yeah, accepting the things I can't change, changing the things I can, and developing the wisdom to distinguish one from the other. So a stoic will divide the world into two. I can change this. I can have no effect on that. I'm going to accept that, and I'm going to set out to change this. And there's a whole bunch of self-help stuff in mental health, which is, as as actually Julian said this morning, is incredibly helpful. Um, But which really comes from this kind of, if you look for it, you'll find the resources inside yourself to to do this. And I would suggest, don't despise this, because this is what Christian thinkers call common grace. It's it's the grace that God gives everybody. Um, And it's helpful. CBT can be tremendously helpful. But people only know the stoic bit of this prayer. It was written by Reinhold Niebuhr, a German theologian who worked out in New York first part of the last century. And this this is his prayer. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. Um, The wisdom to distinguish one from the other, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. 
taking as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. That's not stoicism. That's Christianity. And the message of the gospel is you are not alone and the resources of heaven are yours in the darkest moments of your life. Last thing. When we're feeling like this, whether we have low mood, depressive illness or anxiety, or usually actually some combination of the two, it's like being at the bottom of a deep well. And you're floating in the water at the bottom of the well. Your feet don't touch the bottom. You're having to tread water to keep your head above water. And it's exhausting. And every day that passes is more exhausting than the previous one. It's extremely dark, extremely difficult. But you notice, actually, that there's a ladder up the side of the well. And it takes you all the way to the top. But the problem is, you're floating in the water down here. And the bottom rung of the ladder is outside of your reach. So what you need to do is to lift the level of water in the well so that you can reach the bottom rung and climb out. So the question for my friend who's struggling with low mood or anxiety or both is, what will raise the level of water in your well? And there is no magic bullet in mental illness. There's no magic, this is the cure. The Christians are big magic bullet people. We, we, we love magic bullets. Um, others are too. But what we need to understand is that there isn't a magic bullet, but there is magic buckshot. You know, with loads of pellets that come spraying out. And the question is, which of the pellets is going to help you? And it might be that changing your lifestyle, it might be changing your diet, it might be getting some exercise, it might be buying a dog, it might be all kinds of things that help all kinds of people. It almost certainly will involve some kind of therapeutic intervention, maybe CBT or person-centered counseling. It might mean some psychotherapy of a specialist nature, like uh, biblical counseling or some other kind of counseling. It might mean you might not be able to engage with any of those unless you get a bit of medical help just to help to control your lowness and your feeling of helplessness at that time. But what you need to do is start by seeing a doctor, talking it through with that person, and then starting to take actions that will raise the level of water in the well. And your job as a, a supporter, a helper, a pastoral carer, is to find out, help that person through conversation and listening, what might raise the level of water in your well so that eventually they get to the point, actually, you know, things have really improved and I feel I'm getting better, and they climb out of the well, not all by themselves because they've had your help, they've had God's help, uh, and they stand at the top and they know because this happens. Almost every time this happens, they've recovered their well and crack on I waited patiently for the Lord 
he inclined to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the miry pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in this room, in my experience, a tenth of us will at some point have been um, getting medical help for our feelings. And Lord, I want to pray for every one of us that has been through that experience to ask, Lord, that you might help us lift us out of this well and put our feet upon a rock and make our steps secure. Help us to find those things that just keep us afloat and the water level in the well high enough to climb out. Lord, for those of us who struggle to believe anybody feels like this, they just need to snap out of it. Help us, Lord, to just listen to the word of God and your servant Spurgeon who talked about this being in our imagination but not imaginary. Help us to empathise with others who are struggling with things we've never felt. And of all of us in the middle, I just pray that you'll deepen our ability to feel with others, to empathise as Jesus, and empathise with us and to be really helpful supports for those who are suffering around us. Thank you for your word. Thank you. It's full of surprises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening.